Welcome back and thanks for joining me again. We are now in the midst of understanding and struggling with three-dimensional objects called manifolds. We're interested in manifolds since they provide different possibilities for the shape of the universe. So far, we've explored several examples of manifolds, such as the three-dimensional sphere, the three torus, and lens spaces. We have obtained them from multiplication, from gluing polyhedra, from gluing handle bodies, which are filled in genus G surfaces, and by performing topological surgery on the three-dimensional sphere using knots and links. We have also seen that unlike surfaces, no one as of yet knows of a complete classification of three manifolds. This makes finding invariance all the more important. Well, we've looked at the Euler characteristic, which we have proven is useless for manifolds since they all become zero. This lecture looks at a classical invariant of manifolds that is extremely useful, the fundamental group. Given a manifold, we associate to it an algebraic group in such a way that this group is an invariant of the manifold. Instead of associating things like a number or associating things like a polynomial or even a coloring, we give it an entire group structure. This gives us a taste of the world of algebraic topology, where algebra and its group structure collide with the world of topology and shape. Let's jump into building this new invariant. Now, previously, we have looked at invariants for knots and surfaces. We have associated numbers and polynomials to knots, and we have associated numbers like the Euler characteristic and genus to surfaces. Well, in order to see how we can associate a group to a manifold, we need to begin by associating a group to a surface. This helps us to take baby steps. If we can see how a group can be associated to a surface, then we can step back and take the bigger, deeper challenge of associating it to a manifold. Now, recall what it means to have a group structure, which we studied with relation to braids. A group is an element, excuse me, a group is a set of elements with a composition map with three properties, which means you're given, you're given a bag of elements with, with a composition map of taking any two of those elements, putting it together, and creating a new element, which is back in this bag again. So given this composition map for a collection of elements, then the properties we want is that the composition map must be associative. If you put A and B together and then put C, it should be the same thing as putting A with the collection of BC. So A times B times C should equal A times B times C. This is what associativity means, and it is a needed structure for you to have a group. Every group must also have an identity element. There must be something in that group that no matter what you combine it with, you get that original thing again. So if I take any element in the bag, I combine it with the identity, I get back this element again. It's as if the identity does nothing to it. And then every element in the group as the third structure of a group that I need to have must have an inverse element. In other words, no matter which element I pick, there must be its opposite element. If I put it together, I get back the identity element. Now, recall that the integers, the, num the whole numbers and their negatives, formed a group under addition. 
the operation is adding integers. We had inverses, we had associativity, and we had the identity, and the identity was zero. How are we going to associate a group to a surface, much less a manifold? Well, we want to associate elements to the surface, which we can multiply together to get a group structure. Every group has elements that you're gonna be working with. But what will these elements look like on a surface? There turned out to be a beautiful way to geometrically mimic the group structure of the elements. Now, what we are about to construct, this new group structure, is one of the most important ideas in topology and one of the most intricate and complicated we have encountered in these lectures. Now, this subject is mostly studied in detail the first year of a graduate program in mathematics. Now, if you don't fully understand the depth in which we're going to jump into, don't worry about it. You can always look back at our previous lecture, lecture nine, that talked about braids and groups when we first introduced them to refresh your memory. So once you have an understanding of groups and a refreshment again, you can come back and see how they're applied to surfaces and manifolds. Well, we are here to get a flavor of this radical way of thinking mathematically in order to build an invariant for three manifolds, something that helps us tell three manifolds apart. Remember, the Euler characteristic completely fizzled on us. It said all the Euler characteristic values are zero. It didn't help us at all. So in order for us to define our group in detail, we need some new ideas. Most notably, we need a new kind of equivalence. We're going we're gonna to change the lenses in which we're going to view the world in. Remember, we have thought about isotopy. That was one kind of equivalence, which is called rubber sheet geometry. Under the lens of isotopy, a cube and a sphere are the same. You can just rubber sheet one into the other. You can stretch. But under isotopy, knots become different. There are some knots you cannot stretch into the other ones. This gave us the world of knot theory. But then when we entered surfaces, we put on a different pair of glasses. We have studied the more general notion, not of isotopy, but of homeomorphism. Here, this allows us not just to deform, but to cut, to deform, and then to re-glue the way we cut. Now, under homeomorphism, this weaker kind of equivalence, all knots became homeomorphic. Because you can take any knot, cut it, untangle it, and glue it back together to get the unknot. But there were surfaces, surface of genus 1 and surface of genus 4, which were not homeomorphic. This new way of measuring under homeomorphism told us different ways of considering which surfaces were equivalent or not. So one dimension, we thought about isotopy. Two dimension, we thought about homeomorphism. And now in three dimensions, we're going to think about homotopy. So we consider a new type of equivalence. And this is homotopy, which is even more general in nature. It can best be defined as continuous deformation. Now, the reason I'm being vague on this concept is it's very powerful and it's intricate. Indeed, to give a full understanding of this will take us too far into the mathematical theory, and we will need more sophistication. Thus, in this lecture, we're just going to get a taste of this equivalence to show how different it is from what we're already comfortable with, namely isotopy and homeomorphism. So in order to do this, let's consider an example of homotopy equivalence of spaces. Here, we see the thickened letter A. It's a thick part of an A, and we see that it's homotopy equivalent. This thickened A is homotopy equivalent to the thin shell of an A. What does it mean? I can continuously deform the thick A 
into the thin shell. Look how we can do this. At time equals zero, we have the thick letter A. And as time equals one, as time goes from zero to one, as we move along this time interval, you can see this A, this thick A, deforming into this thin A. It's as if there's a flow, instead of a wind flow, the space itself is flowing from the thickened A into the thinned A. The outer structure of the thickened A moves in, and the inner structure of the thickened A moves out into this thin structure. You can actually imagine taking this as Play-Doh and just compressing it in. But something amazing happens here. This deformation turns out to be more powerful than the one we used for isotopy or homeomorphism. There, we were allowed to pull and stretch for isotopy and homeomorphism, but we were not allowed to crush. Note what is radical about this procedure. We have changed dimension itself. The thickened A was basically a three-dimensional object. At every point, you have a whole 360 degrees of freedom, mostly. But look at the thin A structure. It's mostly a one-dimensional object. At every point on the thin A, you can only move left or right. So we've actually changed dimension. That's the power this new concept of homotopy gives us. Now, let's consider another example. Here we see a disk, and I can homotopically deform this disk into a point. I can actually make the space itself flow and crush it to a point. I've changed a two-dimensional disk into a zero-dimensional point. The point and the disk are homotopically equivalent. Indeed, look at it here. You can take the entire ball and homotopically make it equivalent to a point. I can compress and crush this ball. This was not allowed with my previous concept of equivalence. This also means that the ball is homotopy equivalent to a disk. If the disk and the point are the same under this equivalence, then the ball and the point are the same under this equivalence, then the ball and the disk must be the same. And we can see it here. I can take this ball and I can crush it vertically flat into this disk. Notice how the dimensions are changing. Unlike isotopy and homeomorphism, where dimension remains an invariant, this is no longer true in homotopy. It is truly a weaker notion of equivalence. Moreover, the following four objects that you see here are all homotopy equivalent to one another. Let's just take a look at how the first one is homotopy equivalent to the second one. Here we can have this disk with two holes in it. And notice I can flow the object, the surface from that boundary into these two glass frame structures. By doing this, you can see this compression, this crushing nature of what homotopy equivalence allows us to do. We have seen some examples of homotopy equivalent of different spaces. Now, there is much more to explore here in this world, but let's get back to our goal. How are we going to associate a group to a surface? Now, we want to associate elements to the surface, which we can multiply together to get a group structure. This composition map. But I don't even know what the composition map is because I don't even know what the elements look like. What can they be? They have to do with surfaces. They have to do with something about surfaces. Well, the elements of the group we associate to a surface called the fundamental group turn out to be loops that you can draw on the surface. I want to take some time to explain this out and tease it out more. So, how is homotopy, this new kind of equivalence, related to such loops? Well, let's consider a disk. And it turns out that the following loops that you see here are all homotopy equivalent. 
If I have a disc, if I draw a loop here, I can actually imagine I'm pulling this loop in and compressing it actually all the way down to a point. Now, I'm not moving the space that the loop is on. I'm only performing homotopy on the loop itself. So my disc remains fixed. And I'm actually pulling the rope all the way and stretching and pulling and deforming till it gets to a point. So this loop that you see is homotopy equivalent to a point. But I want you to notice a few things. First, my loops can stretch and be shaped anyway, just like rubber sheet geometry can. They can pull and stretch just like before. Secondly, my loops are allowed to be pulled string taut. I can pull it all the way until it's a point. So here this one dimensional loop becomes homotopy equivalent to a zero dimensional point. I have this power of pulling it so much and stretching it so much, I can pull it all the way down to a point. And third, my loops are allowed to have self-intersections. Notice here this loop, it's also homotopy equivalent to a point. It doesn't matter whether the string crosses itself. In fact, this loop cannot even see itself. It doesn't know what it's doing at a different place. So intersections, which were a big deal with isotopy and homeomorphism, which would have changed a lot of those details, now it doesn't even matter under homotopy. And the key is continuous deformation. Now, instead of a disk, let's consider an annulus. Now, if I have an annulus here, a disk with a hole in it, it turns out that the following three loops are not equivalent. Based on our new concept of equivalence, homotopy of loops, it turns out we're ready to build our group structure. But let's pull back a second. Why are these three loops not equivalent? Well, look at the very first one. I can take this loop and pull it taut and make it into a point. But if you look at the second one, as I pull this loop taut, it catches around that annulus, around that hole right there. And it doesn't have enough space to actually go through. There's that space missing. So no matter how much I try to pull, the homotopy value still means it catches around once around that hole. And look at this third example. If I roll and wrap up this loop two times around that hole, no matter how much I try to pull it taut, I cannot make it into the point there's no space there, that material is missing, that space doesn't exist for my loop to actually go through and get pulled away. And since it's wrapped up twice, there's nothing I can do to make it just wrapped up once. I can't even remove a wrapping. So this is the idea of homotopy, and this is what it needs for us to attack our problems of groups. Well, we first need the basics of a group, the elements of the group itself, and the composition map. So first, we choose any point of our surface as a fixed base point for our work. So pick any point in your surface, fix it, put a peg in it, nail it onto the surface, and consider that as a base point where we're going to do all our operations from. Second, the elements of our groups are the following things. They are paths, they're loops that start and end at the base point, and they have orientation, a direction in which you have to travel along this path forming an entire loop starting and ending at the base point. Now, we need this fixed base point to make sense of compositions of loops, what it means to add loops together. Since they start and end in the same place, it makes sense to do one loop and then add it to another loop because there's that point where they all have in common. And we need an orientation for the elements to make sense of inverses. Now, to actually see this in action, let's look at an example. Consider a disk with two holes. Now, fix a base point on the surface. You can choose it anywhere you want. 
and draw an oriented loop which goes clockwise around a hole starting and ending at the base point that we've chosen. Now, consider this other loop right here. Now, although it's physically different with self-intersections, it's homotopically the same as the first one. In other words, if I wore the lens of homotopy equivalence, I cannot tell the difference between these two loops, although physically they look different. So it does not matter if the second loop has self-intersections or not, because I can deform one in a continuous manner into the first one. Thus, again, under the lens of homotopy, they're the same element. So one element in our group is not a loop, but an entire collection of loops that are all homotopically equivalent to each other. So when I say let's choose an element in my group structure, I'm not picking a loop, but I'm picking a class of loops, a whole world of loops that are all equivalent under the lens of homotopy. Now let's consider another loop. Choose this one. Now notice this cannot be continuously deformed into the first one, so it's actually a different element. The first loop and the second loop are actually different under homotopy, so thus they're different loops. Indeed, to make one into the other, we actually need to break the loop apart and re-glue again. But by breaking it, we've changed continuity. Things were continuously next to each other are not anymore. And this we can't do. We can deform as much as we want, but we cannot change continuity. Well, now that we've talked about the elements of the group, what does it mean to add these loops together? We've talked about the pieces of the puzzle, but I still need the composition map of putting it together. Well, this is what the composition map for a group is for, and this is where the base point plays a crucial role. Look at the very first element here called alpha, fixed at a base point. Now, alpha is a loop that has an orientation. Here's my second element, beta, and I want to teach you how to add these two loops together. Now, since all our loops begin and end at the base point, this allows us to add. Now, how do we add? We simply go along alpha, we come back to the base point, and then we go along beta. That's my new super loop. It's a bigger loop of just going in the first way and the second way. Now, you might say, well, this new loop intersects the base point as it passes through the base point more than once. But, but loops are up to homotopy, the weaker notion of homotopy, and self-intersections and things passing through, they don't matter to me. It makes it unharmed whether it passes through or not. Thus, let's start at my base point. If I have alpha, and then if I have beta, I have a new loop called alpha plus beta, which is simply going along alpha, and then coming to my base point, going along beta, but now I can just pull it out from the base point continuously and just stretch it and notice what happens. It's starting at your base point, you get this object, this new loop, which goes around both of your holes in your disk. That is the new alpha plus beta loop. And that's how we add elements in this group. Well, given our elements of the group, we actually need to check they actually form a group. We've just said these words. We've just talked about elements and adding. Well, recall the three things we need to check. Identity, inverses, associativity. Identity. Well, let's check out the identity. The identity, identity loop does not just start and end at the base point, but stays at the base point the entire time. So the identity loop for us is something that starts and just stays there the entire time and ends there. It's the loop that does nothing. It's just a point, basically. And consider the following examples of loops. All of these show the identity element in different formations. 
The first one is a loop that just stays at the entire time. The second one is a loop that can be pulled into the identity. And the third is something that winds all around the surface, but still can be deformed into the identity. They are different loops, but are considered the same identity element under the lens of homotopy. Now let's think about inverses. The inverse of a loop is simply the same loop, except in opposite orientation. So we must show that adding any loop and its inverse gives you the identity. That's what it means to be an inverse. So let's take a look. So what if I have an element alpha that goes around clockwise around a point, while well, its inverse is alpha inverse, which is exactly the same loop, except it goes the opposite direction. Well, so uh, how do I add? I, I go around the first way, and I go back the second way. But remember, when it comes to the base point, I can just pull it off because it's continuous deformation. And as I pull it off, note what happens. If I go alpha and alpha inverse, and I just pull it back by continuous deformation, it deforms all the way to my point again. So alpha plus its inverse gives me the identity element, which is just that point, the loop that's just stuck there. Now we just need to check our third condition, associativity. We need to show that the loops ABC equals ABC. Well, this is quite believable, and it turns out it's indeed true, and I don't want to go to the details of this, but it's quite easy to be convinced. So now we have a group structure called the fundamental group. The elements of the group are loops on my surfaces up to homotopy equivalence, and the composition map is just following one loop and then through the other one all the way to the base point. Now there is one aspect of this group structure we need to be careful with. For the group of integers under addition, we had the property of commutativity. Now this is not associativity. In commutativity, we had three plus five equals five plus three. Is this true for the fundamental group? Can we go along one path and then the other, or the other path and then the one? Does it matter the order in which we do things? Remember the braid group? It turns out that the braid group was not commutative. The braid A1, A2 was not the same thing as the braid A2, A1. Remember, these were actually different. Notice the second strand for the first one behaves very differently than the second strand for the second one. And in general, the fundamental group is not associative as well. Let's just look at this demonstration. Here, I just have um, a ribbon, and I'm going to build my group structure from this thing. Now, we will show that the group structure A, which wraps around this box, and the group structure, the element B, which wraps around this box, when I put it together, is not commutative. So here's my A, A times A inverse. Here's A inverse. It just goes exactly the opposite way. And B times B inverse, which goes exactly the opposite way. Let's see what happens when I do this. I have my beginning and end strands. I'm just going to pull. And notice what happens. I get the identity. A times A inverse and B times B inverse give me the identity as I expect. But what if I switch the middle two elements? What if I make them commute? Now I get A, not times A inverse, but I get A times B. And now I perform A inverse, which is going back the other way, times B inverse. It's the same procedure I did, except I just made them switch. And if I hold my last two strands together as my fixed point and just show you what happens, notice that this doesn't untangle like the old one did. I don't get the identity element anymore. Well, now that we have an understanding of the group structure, Let's spend some time calculating the fundamental group of some surfaces. Let's start with the sphere. The fundamental group of the sphere turns out to be trivial. Why? 
because you can simply take the two-dimensional sphere, put a point in it, and any loop you draw, there's no hole. There's nothing there that's stopping you. You can pull it back in. Since no obstacle prevents it, we get the simple trivial group. Well, what about the fundamental group of the annulus, which is a disk with a hole in it? Well, given any base point, we can wrap loops around this hole clockwise and counterclockwise. And we can do this as many times as we want. As we saw earlier, if I start wrapping it clockwise once and twice, it's different than if I just wrapped it clockwise once. I cannot somehow take this double wrap and make it into a single wrap by just moving. This hole, this, this structure here in this annulus prevents me from doing it. But also I can take it and wrap it counterclockwise. Well, what does this group structure look like? Well, remember for the integers, the number one generates the whole group. You can take one and use the composition map over and over again, either adding or subtracting, and get every integer you want. The one somehow is the heart of the integers. I can get 17 from one, I can get negative seven from one by subtracting one from it over and over again. In a similar way, the simple loop around the annulus generates every element of the fundamental group. In other words, I can go once, twice, or I can go negative once, negative twice. Thus, the fundamental group of the annulus is identified to the integers under addition. We have mixed the algebra of adding and the topology of loops. Well, what about the fundamental group of the disk with two holes in it? As our instincts would have it, this group is generated by two letters. One loop that goes around the first hole, let's call it alpha, and the second one that goes around the second hole, let's call it beta. Now the elements of the group are all possible words we can make with these two letters. So you can think of any word you want, alpha, beta, beta, alpha, beta, inverse, alpha, beta, and that is an element by combining all of these alphas and betas together. And that's just tracing out the alphas and betas as I just described it. Now recall the braid group, if we remember the braid group, had special rules or relationships between the letters. Remember when we came up with certain words of braids, we had a right to substitute a different mini word in there, these relationships. Are there any special relationships between the two letters for this particular surface where we have with two holes? It turns out there are none. In fact, we even showed earlier in the demonstration that the elements of this group don't even commute. Alpha and beta are its own thing. Now, let's get more ambitious. What about the fundamental group of something we're very familiar with, not the sphere, which became the trivial group, the obvious one, but the torus? Well, this group is also generated by two letters. The two letters are alpha and beta, where alpha is the loop that goes around the meridian and beta is the loop that goes around the longitudinal curves. Each one of these generate the group. If you can write words using alpha and beta with these two letters, you actually get the entire group. Now notice each element can wind around as many times as we want in the alpha direction and come back to the base point as my, as my element of a group, or you can wind around beta as many times as you want or backwards in an inverse way to get there. So just like before, with a surface with two holes in it, a disk with two holes, it was generated by alpha going around one hole and beta going around one, another hole. Here we have a torus going around the meridian and the longitude. Previously, there were no relations between alpha and beta. Just do anything you want with the words alpha and beta, and there's no substitution you needed to do like we did for the braid group. For the torus, are there any special rules to how these letters are related? It turns out 
There are. Indeed, the rule is that these two letters commute. That is, alpha and beta can be interchanged freely in any word you write. But why? And here's where I think it's exciting. The geometric beauty of the torus holds the answer to the commuting. Remember how we can take the torus, here's my alpha generator and my beta generator, the two main loops that create all my other possible loops in my group. I can cut the torus open exactly along these generators and I get my square with the identification. Notice the left and right sides are my alpha loop and my top and bottom are my beta loop. But look what happens. If I take my base point, which is P right at the center, it happens to be the corner of all my four points. If I go up in the alpha direction and right in the beta direction, well, that's me doing alpha loop and then beta loop. I can also go right in the beta direction and up in the alpha direction. That's beta and alpha. One gives me the alpha beta loop. The other gives me the beta alpha loop. But look what I can do. Since I have an entire square in the middle, I can take my alpha beta loop and just deform it and make it into the beta alpha loop. Because of the region of that torus, alpha beta equals beta alpha. So for the group structure, we get a pair of integers. Look what happens, what we can do in this structure. Given an element like this, alpha, beta, alpha, alpha, beta, inverse, alpha, beta, beta, alpha, beta, I can take my beta and alpha, and since I can switch them, since they commute, I can take this one beta and keep moving it to the right past all the alphas. I can do this for every other beta. In fact, I can move all my alphas to the left side because they commute with everything, and I can take my, all my betas to the right side because they commute with everything. Thus, at the end of the day, I just need to look at how many alphas I have in the front and how many betas I have in the back. And in this particular case, I have five alphas and three betas. So this elemental structure of going alpha and beta around the torus can be simply represented by the integers five comma three. We just get an ordered pair of integers. Indeed, we add these by just adding the first order pair to the first element and the second to the second. We, we basically get two copies of integers representing this fundamental group. Well, we have encountered quite a complex invariant today. It assigns an algebraic group structure, which is a detailed and complicated concept to begin with, to the theory of shapes under a whole new lens called homotopy equivalence. And we calculated some fundamental groups of simple surfaces. However, for arbitrary surfaces, without more powerful machinery, the calculations become quite difficult and intricate. Well, now that we have a good grasp on the fundamental group of surfaces, our next lecture applies these ideas to what we're truly interested in, three manifolds and the shape of the universe. Stay tuned.